Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in for Julia Chatterley. Good to be with you. And just ahead on today's show, speaker looking bleaker. Kevin McCarthy's leadership bid shot down for the 11th straight time Wednesday. Republicans still divided on who will become the next head of the U.S. House of Representatives. A full report just ahead. Plus, border reorder. A historic weekend ahead in China. Beijing officially scrapping quarantine requirements for tourists. The Chinese border with Hong Kong also set to reopen, even as Chinese COVID cases continue to surge. And employment? Well, still pretty buoyant. The U.S. is out with the first big economic report of the new year. The all-important U.S. jobs report showing that the U.S. economy added 223,000 jobs in December. That's a bit higher than expectations. The unemployment rate also falling unexpectedly to 3.5%. Wage gains, though, they moderated. We also saw downward revisions to the past two months of data. Let's take a look at reactions on the global markets. U.S. stocks, look at that, green arrows across the board. Dow, Nasdaq, and S&P futures all up about 1%. Europe, as you can see, in the green as well. European investors also getting some encouraging news on Eurozone inflation this session. Happy Friday for investors, at least at this point. Let's get straight to those jobs numbers. Matt Egan is with me now. So, Matt, walk me through this report. I mean, it doesn't seem to be quite an even recovery. What industries are adding jobs? What industries do you see, if at all, pulling back? Well, Rahel, um, happy Friday. You know, markets are really looking for a Goldilocks number here. Um, You know, not too hot, not too cold. And I think we got a little bit of a mix here. There's really something for everyone. You know, on the cooling side, wages. You mentioned that wages did slow down significantly. They were revised lower for November. That is good news if you're worried about inflation, if you're sitting at the Federal Reserve. It's not good news for workers, of course, who are struggling to keep up with the cost of living. Um, But also some parts of this did come in a little hotter than expected. Payroll growth, you mentioned 223,000 jobs. That was ahead of expectations, although it is a slowdown from the prior month. Um, The unemployment rate, I mean, 3.5%, that is tied for the lowest level in the last half century. Pretty amazing that we're still seeing this really low level of unemployment. Now, as far as sectors, A lot of parts of this economy are still adding jobs. Leisure and hospitality continues to add um, a lot of jobs, up 67,000. Healthcare, 55,000. Construction, retail, manufacturing, all of them adding jobs. On the negative side, uh, we're not seeing many industries outright lose jobs. Except for professional and business services, that's down by 6,000. Most of that was driven by temporary help. Also, technology. Information was down by 5,000. We've heard about all these layoffs from you know, Amazon and Salesforce and other major companies um, that is starting to show up a bit in the jobs report. So I think we're held big picture. This looks pretty mixed, but right now investors are, are happy with what they see. Yeah, investors seem to like it for sure. Matt, how about the Fed? How does the Fed interpret this? Because as you know, we have gotten a slew of labor data today. How do you think the Fed reads this? 
Yeah, we have gotten a lot of uh, reports, and you know, most of them have come in stronger than expected. You look at jobless claims yesterday falling to a uh, three-month low. Uh, the number of job openings uh, remains surprisingly high. Um, and then this sort of mixed jobs report, I think that this means that the Fed is still on track to continue to raise interest rates. Um, it frees them up to potentially slow the pace of those rate hikes. Markets are anticipating the Fed goes from 50 basis points um, in the final meeting of last year to 25 basis points, but that is, of course, still raising interest rates. Um, I don't think that this report is going to satisfy the Fed in terms of giving them an all-clear sign to stop raising interest rates altogether. I think they need to see even more proof that the jobs market is cooling off and inflation is calming down. Mm, speaking of inflation, I think we get CPI next Thursday, so a lot more to come there. Matt Egan, thank you. Let's turn to Ukraine now, where artillery is still being fired despite the start of what is meant to be a unilateral ceasefire. Vladimir Putin ordered the temporary truce to coincide with the Orthodox Christmas holiday. However, Ukraine has not agreed to the ceasefire, with President Zelensky calling the move by Putin hypocrisy and a cover. Now they want to use Christmas as a cover to at least briefly stop the advance of our guys in Donbas and bring equipment, ammunition and mobilized men closer to our positions. What will this bring? Just another increase in the death toll. And 10 months of war in Ukraine has led to a new normal for many Ukrainians, like delivering pensions to the elderly in a war zone. Ben Wiedemann traveled to a town on the front lines in eastern Ukraine where postal workers serve as a lifeline for retired Ukrainians. Sometimes a morning stroll to the post office is not just a stroll. The town of Siversk has been on the firing line for months. But a few, mostly the elderly, hang on with dogged determination. And on this day, the post office, a mobile post office, has come to town. Oleksiy Vorobyov heads the local military administration and urges residents not to bunch up just in case shelling starts. They're waiting to pick up their modest state pensions, for most just around $100 a month, but enough to buy supplies from the handful of shops still open. Getting the job done safely is a challenge. We're trying to choose the right time and place, Oleksii says, but this is war. Today it's like this, and tomorrow it can be totally different. Russian forces on the distant ridge are just a few miles away. Rain or shine or shelling, the people from the post office come here once a month to hand out pensions. Without those pensions, the few people remaining here would not be able to survive. In the cold, they wait patiently for their turn. This is essential, says Ludmila. We have nothing, only water in the well, no electricity, no gas, nothing since March. Living in constant danger for months on end, they get by on stoic fatalism. I was born here, says Olga. This is my motherland. I'm not going anywhere. What will be, will be. Anna Fasenko runs the mobile post office. Is she afraid, I ask her? It's a good question, she answers. 
We just feel people need us. When you entered the town, you probably thought no one is here. But look how many are here. Someone needs to come here and give pensions. If not us, who? Despite the gloom of war, the mail, or rather the pensions, always get through. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Siversk, Eastern Ukraine. And CNN's Scott McLean is live for us in Kyiv. Scott, I want to circle back to that unilateral ceasefire, as I said. Is there even any indication on the ground that Russia is honoring this unilateral ceasefire? Yeah, not so from what we've seen thus far. Ben Wiedemann, whose uh, story that you just showed there, says that his team witnessed both incoming and outgoing fire just after this ceasefire was set to begin. And this was fairly predictable, Rahel, because, of course, the Ukrainians never accepted this ceasefire in the first place. President Zelensky called it pure deception. And so this was not something that the Ukrainians were ever going to agree to or going to abide by. They viewed this as the Russians simply trying to give themselves a chance to resupply the front lines, send more troops to the front lines, maybe get a better positioning along the front lines. And the Ukrainians simply did not want to allow that. You also had the Russians who made abundantly clear that if they were fired upon, they would return fire. And they also would fire if they sense that the Ukrainians were trying to gain the upper hand on the front lines during this supposed ceasefire time. And so this ceasefire was sort of doomed from the beginning. And when you talk to people in this country, no one had any faith that Orthodox Christmas this time of year would be a quiet one. In fact, I spoke to one woman who read the statement from the Kremlin very carefully, and it indicated that the ceasefire would be along the line of contact, along the front line. Well, Kiev is a long way from the front line, and so her expectation was that there would be missile strikes in the rest of the country. Now, we haven't seen that thus far. The air raid sirens did go off after that ceasefire was set to begin, but that's not necessarily always a sign of incoming fire. But I attended a church service at St. Michael's just behind me under those gold domes, and the head of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine was leading that service for soldiers. And he, when he heard the air raid sirens, he told me afterwards that he thought this is just more evidence that the Russians were never going to hold to this kind of a truce. Um, The former president of Russia, Rahel Dmitry Medvedev, also said that in rejecting this ceasefire, the Ukrainians had rejected the um, the Christian hand of mercy. Well, no one that I've spoke to thus far thinks that Russia's invasion of this country is has anything to do with Christianity or involves anything resembling mercy. Yeah, that's a great point. Scott McLean, live force there in Kiev. Thank you. Well, Greece is now becoming the latest country to require a negative COVID test for travelers from China. Nearly 20 governments now have introduced new travel restrictions as COVID cases surge in China following the sudden reversal of its zero COVID policy. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong with the latest. Ivan, so we know the border with mainland China also opens on Sunday. Help me understand a timeline of how exactly this is all unfolding. I mean, how soon before you think we'll actually see people flying in the air? Well, and they can fly now, but a lot of the flights to and from mainland China over the last three years have come to a stop uh, because China effectively closed its borders for 
the better part of three years. Uh, and in fact, to this day, I might point out, if you try to fly to China, there is still a mandated government hotel quarantine of at least five days followed by three days of home quarantine. It may not be uh, uh, enforced as much as it had been in the past, but that's still there until Sunday. So, you know, you showed this map. Let's bring it back up again, because all throughout this week, there are more and more uh, spots of red on the map uh, illustrating the countries that are imposing restrictions. And most of them, it's just, hey, you need to get a COVID test within 48 hours of departure to prove that you're not sick. Uh, with the, the most dramatic uh, move being Morocco, which had visa-free travel for Chinese citizens and has suspended any travel from mainland. China uh, to Morocco right now. The Chinese government doesn't like this, and uh, it has been criticizing these moves, accusing them of being discriminatory. Take a listen. There should be no discriminatory practices, let alone political manipulation. In response to introduction of unreasonable practices by some countries, China will take corresponding measures in accordance with the principle of reciprocity. And and I just point out again, there's still a mandatory quarantine if you try to travel to mainland China today from the outside. But okay, that's going to go away in about 48 hours. There's an incredible amount of pent-up demand. Uh, Trip.com, Rahel, it reports that there was a surge in interest for outbound flights from China over the last two weeks of some 83% compared to the previous two weeks and that uh, there has been a surge in bookings of nearly 60% for outbound flights from China over that same two-week period. Uh, The uh, travel to Hong Kong, because Hong Kong, though part of China, has been effectively cut off uh, from free travel uh, from mainland China, um, that is also set to come up on Sunday. But there are quotas. Uh, Only about 60,000 people from mainland China allowed in here a day, uh, and people have to book to cross uh, the boundary between uh, the two territories. Uh, One of the big concerns here, though, from critics around the world is of a lack of transparency. That's the accusation. For example, the Chinese Center for Disease Control, Rahel, it reports that only six people in all of China died of COVID on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. The World Health Organization, it says that those numbers are underreported, and that is leading to this kind of concern from some governments around the world about allowing plane loads of potential sick people to fly to their territory. Mm. Yeah, as you pointed out, uh, 20 governments at this point now sort of enforcing uh, these new restrictions because of those concerns about transparency. Ivan Watson, thank you. Now to Tesla. Tesla shares beginning the new year and low gear amid growing concern about slower demand and also increased competition in China. Elon Musk's EV firm down 10 percent so far this January. It's closer to 7 percent right now, as I said. That's an early trading on word of new price cuts, actually 15 minutes before the trading session begins. Paula Monica joins me now. So, Paul, help me understand, I mean, how concerned should investors be? I mean, you have a whole slew of issues right now for Tesla. As we say, you have the increased competition domestically for EVs uh, in China, but then you also have weaker demand. Yeah, I think that, Rahel, right now, Tesla investors have to be incredibly nervous about the situation in China. We know that a recent surge in COVID cases is troubling and could be a problem for the economy there. But as you point out, 
if Tesla is cutting prices again, this is the second time in just a few months, it is a reflection that maybe they need to have lower prices in order to get buyers to be enticed enough to want the Model 3, the Model uh, Y, and other Tesla vehicles. Because there is a lot of competition, homegrown competition in China from electric vehicle manufacturers like NIO and Xpeng. And then there's also BYD Group, which is backed by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. So it is very troubling right now. And then you throw on to that that there are the same worries in the United States about increased competition from the likes of GM and Ford and major European and Japanese automakers as well. Tesla doesn't have the electric vehicle market all to itself anymore. Not at all. And Dan Ives, an analyst who covers uh, the company very closely, pointing out that this may not be the last of these price cuts that we're seeing in China. Uh, Paul, you know, one additional challenge for Tesla investors is that Elon Musk also has his hands full over at Twitter. And we're learning that some laid off Twitter workers are complaining that they may not have gotten severance. What are you learning here? Yeah, the reports that we've had uh, is that uh, there are some people who have talked to CNN's Claire Duffy about the fact that they thought that they would be getting more details about their severance packages and they are still waiting. That's obviously a very troublesome sign, if true. And I think that it won't help Elon Musk's reputation, which I think is starting to become a challenge. There are a lot of people, particularly on the coast, I think, who bought Teslas in the past because they felt like it was the right thing to do for the environment. It was a good social thing to do. But are people going to want to associate themselves with a guy who may not be paying severance to Twitter employees and is making all this other noise on uh, Twitter that doesn't exactly shine himself or portray himself in the best of lights? It's going to be a continued challenge because as we, as we pointed out, you don't have to just buy a Tesla if you want an electric vehicle. There are a lot of other ones out there. It's an interesting point just in terms of the brand damage that Elon Musk could potentially cause to Tesla. Shares are off, by the way, 69% over the last year. Just a shocking fall for Tesla. Paula Monica, great to have you. Thank you. Let's turn to Washington now, where Republican lawmakers are struggling, continue to struggle to elect the next House Speaker. Kevin McCarthy failed to secure enough votes five more times on Thursday. He has now lost 11 rounds of voting in three days. So if this takes a little longer and it doesn't meet your deadline, that's okay. Because it's not, it's, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And if we finish well, we'll be very successful. Jessica Dean joins us live from Capitol Hill. Jessica, great to see you. Look, I mean, what does this group want? I mean, what are the main sticking points at this point? And from what you can tell is the group of rebels, as they have called themselves, are they growing larger at this point, they're kind of holding steady, Rahel, but it, there is a group of them, a small sect, let's say four to six, uh, that are just never, ever going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. And that's where the rub is. So right now they are furiously negotiating with a larger group of these 20. And McCarthy and his allies believe they can bring them on board with some of these concessions, uh, chief among them uh, lowering the threshold to call 
for the ouster of a sitting speaker to just one member being able to call for that vote instead of half of the conference. So that's a big change. And that was something McCarthy was hesitant to do, but he's going to have to do it to convince them to come to his side. But the fact remains, even if they get 10 or 12 of them, they're still not at 218. And so that's really the rub. But I'll tell you, today is truly a key moment for McCarthy. He has got to show progress to his supporters. And moderates are getting a little bit twitchy about what he's giving away, whether they're willing to stay on board. He's really got to hold this together. So he's got to show progress. We know they've got a 10-15 conference call. They'll all be on the phone. He'll be talking about some of this new these new rules uh, that he's been circulating with this group. And then they are scheduled to be back in at noon. The question now is, will they go to another round of voting? Will they move to adjourn uh, to try to work through this? That's the big question right now, but he's got to show some movement today or he's going to risk this whole thing kind of falling apart on him. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch. And as you point out, as uh, he makes these concessions, it makes you wonder if some of these concessions forces him to lose some moderates. A lot to watch. Jessica Dean, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, straight ahead. Violence erupts in Mexico after the son of notorious drug lord El Chapo is arrested. We'll have the latest. Plus, later in the show, making the metaverse fashionable the startup selling apparel fit for an avatar yes you heard all of that correctly don't miss it welcome back the son of the notorious drug lord joaquin el chapo guzman remains in police custody in mexico authorities arrested ovidio guzman in a dramatic operation that led to violent clashes between police and drug cartel members rafael romo joins me rafael great to have you i mean as i said this has led to violent clashes what's the status now on the ground there yeah, hi. Definitely violent. The operation and subsequent chaos that ensued in the northern Mexican city of Culiacán is evidence of how powerful some criminal organizations in Mexico can be after the early morning raid, a battle between criminal gangs and Mexican security forces ensued, putting at risk the civilian population, including some passengers who got trapped at the local airport. Residents in the Mexican northern city of Culiacán woke up to what seemed to many like a war zone. Roads were blocked throughout the city, including this one leading to the airport. This is how criminal groups responded after this man, Ovidio Guzman López, was detained by Mexican security forces. His arrest produced clashes between cells of his criminal gang and Mexican security forces. Momentos después de la detención, Mexican Defense Minister Crescencio Sandoval said that after Guzman's detention, cells from his criminal group staged 19 blockades and armed attacks in different parts of the city, including its international airport and an Air Force base. Ovidio Guzman López, also known as the Mouse, is the son of Joaquín El Chapo Guzmán. The former leader of the Sinaloa cartel was convicted in the U.S. in 2019 of 10 counts related to leading a criminal organization, drug trafficking, and firearms charges. He was sentenced to life in prison, plus 30 years. Mexican Defense Minister Sandoval said Ovidio, El Chapo's son, leads the criminal group known as the Miners, part of the Cartel of the Pacific, which is responsible for violence in four Mexican states and the country's northwest region. And according to the U.S. State Department, law enforcement investigations indicate Ovidio and his brother, Joaquin Guzman López, function in high-level command and control roles 
of their own drug trafficking organization, the Guzman Lopez Transnational Criminal Organization, under the umbrella of the Sinaloa cartel. The Mexican government had already tried to capture Ovidio Guzman Lopez in October 2019. After he was detained, the Sinaloa cartel unleashed a heavily armed fighting force. A gun battle in the streets of Culiacán ensued, putting the lives of countless civilians at risk. It quickly became painfully obvious the Sinaloa cartel had outmaneuvered and overpowered Mexican security forces. In the end, Mexican authorities decided to release Guzman to prevent further bloodshed. And Rahel, I have an update for you. A few moments ago, Mexican Defense Minister Crescencio Sandoval said a total of 29 people died, 19 alleged criminals, and 10 members of the Mexican military. Now, the question is, what's going to happen to Ovidio Guzman now that he is behind bars? The United States has requested his extradition. Asked about the matter, Mexican Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard said yesterday the judicial process in Mexico has to run its course before a decision can be made on whether El Chapo's son can be extradited. Rahel, back, back to you. Mm. Interesting developments there. Rafael Romo, thank you. Well, coming up after the break, the latest on today's jobs numbers with Chief Economist at KPMG, Diane Swalk. We'll be right back. first move that would be the official bell ringing on this first friday of 2023 u.s stocks up and running as we look at pbr there opening the ringing bell they're ringing the bell uh professional bull riders and if you were an investor in this market maybe you feel like you've been bull riding this market too lots of twists and turns Investors today reacting to the all-important U.S. jobs report and green arrows across the board with the Nasdaq up about six-tenths of one percent starting the day and the Dow and the S&P closer to about three-quarters of one percent. But there is a lot of session left, so we'll see how the day shapes up. And the major averages, again, solidly higher, up more than half a percent. Wall Street also currently on track to finish the week with gains. Again, the first week of 2023. There's also a lot of year left in 2023, so we'll see how it all shakes out. The December report, the December jobs report showing the U.S. added 223,000 jobs. That was a bit higher than expected. The unemployment rate, that ticked down a bit too. But wage gains, and this is what I think investors are really keying on to, slowed a bit. And that's potentially an encouraging sign on inflation. That said, today's numbers come after a whole host of data this week pointed to a continued strong and robust labor market, including solid reads on private sector employment growth and job openings. Fed members were out in force Thursday, making it pretty clear that their fight against inflation is far from done. The head of the Kansas City Fed saying benchmark rates should rise to above 5 percent and stay there for at least the rest of the year. Diane Swank is the chief economist of KPMG and joins me now. Diane, great to see you on this Jobs Friday today that we all look forward to uh, quite a bit. So tell me your top line reaction to this. So as I said, 223,000 jobs being added, slightly hotter than expected, but wages coming in softer than expected. 
Well, this is about as Goldilocks of a report as it gets for the Federal Reserve. We still had solid, as you said, employment gains. And in fact, the gains would have been even stronger if not for a system-wide strike in the University of California system. So I think that's important to put in there as well because the public sector has been hiring up where there's been acute staffing shortages, most notably in public education. What we saw in this jobs report was that leisure and hospitality is still leading overall gains and trying to catch up on what was lost during the pandemic. We are seeing participation also come up with the unemployment rate coming down. That was good news and welcome news after we had seen a reversal in that trend during the fall. And I think that's important too. But one of the more interesting issues is that participation among both men and women, although prime age women have reached the peak they hit, basically in February 2020, they're still lagging the G20 countries along with men. And that is something that just can't happen. We're really discarding a lot of talent and keeping it on the sidelines and not tapping that talent as our competitors are both in the developing and developed world, despite the fact that we don't have a lot of safety nets. Right. We certainly need people to come off the sidelines, as you point out. Diane, help me understand the recovery that we're seeing. I mean, we've seen a job growth recover in certain industries to pre-pandemic levels and not so much in other industries. It seems to be a bit of an uneven recovery. What are you seeing in terms of industries? Well, there's a big shift from what we saw in February of 2020, and that's because we're still lagging in many of the care sectors, education, and in childcare, long-term nursing, healthcare, those sectors are still badly lagging. Also, leisure and hospitality are still lagging. And even though prime age women are participating at a pace that they were prior to the pandemic in February of 2020, their recovery has not been as strong as the recovery for men, even though they were hit harder for the in overall employment levels, even though they were hit harder by initial layoffs. So there still is a very uneven recovery and the distribution of job gains is very different than what it was prior to the pandemic with some of the legacy increase in good side of the economy versus the service sector outpacing the recovery from that initial sort of reopening and spending heavily on goods as opposed to services. Of course, now we're seeing that shift in revenge travel and the move in leisure and hospitality and in healthcare, but we still have acute labor shortages and that can't be escaped. The labor force is almost flat with where it was in terms of size from February of 2020. That's mostly because of retirements and a shortfall in immigration and of course the souls we lost in the prime age labor force to the pandemic. On the margin though, we saw this week as well, demand for workers, job openings are 50% above the level they were Mm. in February of 2020. Our analysis suggests that's almost entirely due to high quality new business formations, which those are businesses that are actually hiring workers, not just the self-employed. Hmm, That's an interesting point. I think it's why you're also starting to hear a lot more talk about structural changes to the labor market because of some of those points that you've already pointed out, retirement, uh, people who who may not ever return to the labor market. Diane, can I ask for wages? They appear to vary certainly by industry. And I think there is a lot of talk about how much excess savings we have. But I wonder if there is a group at the lower income who perhaps um, maybe they're making more, but they're still not making a lot and they have tapped through their savings. And I just wonder, is there enough focus on the people at the lower end of the spectrum who are probably not still sitting on a lot of savings. And yes, they may be making more, but inflation is probably eating into that. 
Exactly, and I agree entirely. It's a great question. Our analysis suggests we're down to, as of um, the late fall, um, we've drained over half of the savings that we accrued, almost half of the savings, the excess savings we accrued during the pandemic via both stimulus checks and what we weren't spending things on. The bulk of that drawdown came in the bottom 40% of income earners. So not just the poorest, but the bottom half of the middle class as well. And is starting to move up the economic food chain. The overwhelming majority of excess saving is concentrated in the highest income earning households. Those are the households less likely to tap their savings to spend. They also have better incomes, of course, and better wealth. But that is important because you won't have as much of a tailwind on consumer spending going into 2023. We did get an extra boost at the end of the year in terms of consumer spending because of the fall in prices at the gas pump. That really helped out those workers that were at the lower end of the wage scale because as their commute costs went up, they were really squeezed. We actually saw a contraction in retail sales in November. I think we'll see better numbers in December. But as we move into the year, the bottom line is that the slowdown in wage growth for low-wage workers is where it's occurring. And in fact, those are the workers that were burned the most by inflation overall. And we can't roll out a secondary shock in energy and food prices come the second half of 2023. Right, and I think, Diane, you, you said this, and forgive me if I'm butchering this, you once told me before when I when I spoke with you that inflation uh, hurts everyone, but it, you know, it doesn't devastate everyone, right? It devastates certainly uh, those who are at the lower income spectrum. Before I let you go, Diane, and, and quickly, if you might, looking ahead to 2023, you've said before that storm clouds will get darker before they clear. Have they darkened enough from what you've seen? I don't think so. I think, unfortunately, we're going to see more unemployment before we see the Fed stop um, basically turn around and cut rates. And that is their baseline. The Fed's baseline says that it is a softish landing, which is not exactly soft. Their baseline is to stall out growth in 2023 and raise the unemployment rate by more than a percent from where it's at today. Now, it's at an extremely low three and a half percent, and that's wonderful. But that's not with as many people participating as even were in the prime age labor force in February of 2020. And so clearly, this is still a very mixed bag, even though it is a much better economy than we saw um, in a better recovery, more rapid recovery than we've seen in the past. It has come with that singe of inflation. And that's something that the Fed is still very worried about. A lot easier to get from 6 to 4 percent core inflation then from four to two, and that's where they're worried about where the heavy lifting is going to come, and they're going to have to stand firm on rate hikes. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, what Powell has said before. You know, I wish there was a painless way to do this in terms of fighting inflation. And I think heading into 2023, a lot, at least for me, will be looking for sort of what that pain looks like and who is feeling it the most. Diane Swank, we'll leave it here. Thank you. She is the chief economist at KPMG. And still to come, the designer dresses that do not need washing and they never crease because you can only wear them online. I will be talking to the co-founder of the company, which makes them. We'll be right back. Welcome back. My next guest is making sure that when you walk down the virtual street in the metaverse, you do it in style. And you may not be the only one because last year, Deloitte estimated that metaverse fashion may be a $55 
billion dollar industry by 2030. DressX is its name. It sells digital fashion for avatars and images. Since its launch in 2020, the company has racked up some pretty big partnerships, including Coca-Cola, H&M, and American Eagle. Even Mark Zuckerberg is taking notice. Over the summer, DressX became the first digital-only fashion company to provide clothes for Meta's new avatar fashion marketplace alongside luxury brands like Prada and Balenciaga. Joining me now is DressX co-founder Daria Shapovalova. Daria, great to have you. Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm doing great. So I think we just should start at the top. Explain to me a bit how it works. Is it only for the metaverse? Is it also for social media and the digital world? Explain to me from the top how it works. Yes, of course. It's also for the social media. So if you go to DressX.com, you can actually purchase any item that will be digital only. And in order to wear it, you just need to upload your picture uh, and then you will be dressed in that item. And so it is ready to be posted on your social media feed. Uh, whenever you, wherever you want to post it, either it's Twitter, it's Instagram, any other social media, use it as a profile picture. But yes, as you've mentioned in the intro, we also sell clothes for the avatars. So you can directly purchase clothing from DressX in the Instagram or Facebook, um, Oculus in VR, and dress your avatar as well. So it's your kind of digital self. (laughs) It's so interesting. And how much does it cost? I mean, if a real dress, let's say a real dress retails for about $50 to $100, obviously some more, some less, how much would a dress in the metaverse or a digital dress cost? Yes, absolutely. So for the avatars, it's um, somewhere between uh, 3 and $10. And uh, for the social media, when you dress your picture, it's usually uh, um, around $30 uh, because it's a different process of how it works. You know, is it is it clear when you look at a, a digital image on social media, if this is a, a digital image or is it a real dress? Is that clear to tell or is it not so clear? To be honest, it's not so clear. Some dresses, they look so real that even I, the founder of the company, when I see the results, I can't believe that this dress is digital. And I also do post a lot, of course, on my social media, on my Instagram, myself wearing digital dresses. And sometimes people don't realize that dress is digital. That is fascinating, obviously. Mm. And so it's also sort of this ecosystem that it creates, because I read that there are also now paid professional stylists for the metaverse and for virtual reality. I mean, it sort of created also this other entire ecosystem. Absolutely. Stylists, designers that uh, create only dresses in the digital world, designers for the metaverse, let's say, those occupations and professions never existed before. So yeah, that's an entirely new industry that I'm sure will create some new professions after a couple of years. Do you worry at all about folks who are concerned that maybe the lines are blurring between real life, real fashions and virtual fashion? So, you know, if you're scrolling social media and you're a young person and you see your favorite influencer in a great dress, but it's actually a virtual dress and you aspire to want these things and maybe the person doesn't even have it. Do you worry about that blurring line? Uh, We do understand there is a blurring line, but we also need to also think about uh, kind of advantages of digital fashion. So imagine if you continue purchasing something in from the fashion 
every day from the fashion brands. It will be not sustainable. But actually, it takes way less resources to produce a digital dress. So you can actually move some of your consumption into the digital-only reality. And actually, your consumption habits will become more sustainable because you can still continue to have your physical wardrobe, but then you will have your digital wardrobe. And you can explicitly mention that this dress is from my digital wardrobe and I purchased mm. it at DressX and it's by this designer. But actually, overall, it can make your wardrobe way more sustainable because, like, there is a problem of overconsumption in the fashion industry for people because we tend to consume a lot. And we're not saying that let's purchase less physical items. Let's purchase those physical items with more thoughts about do we really need them to wear on a daily basis? And if we're not sure, why don't you try to purchase the same dress in digital reality and see if you like it. <laughs> mm, I see. So that would explain sort of why you have said in the past, we don't see digital fashion as something that will substitute for physical fashion. Uh, in your perspective, it's more of an addition or something to, to have fun with when you are um, online or playing in the digital space. Yes, absolutely. We truly believe in the future when every person in the world will have their physical wardrobes and digital wardrobes by DressX and uh, that it will be like two different wardrobes. Some of the clothing will be in physical and in digital reality as a copy. So definitely this is something that we're moving into and especially as you've mentioned that metaverse became the word of the year <laughs> for a couple of uh, for in 2021 for sure. So yeah. people get familiar with this concept. And even when we started in 2020, it was not that evident. Right. It certainly has sort of picked up pace. But I'll tell you one thing, Dari, I'm going to be looking a lot closer on social media at some of the people that I follow to see if those dresses are <laughs> real or if they are virtual. <laughs> Wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good that day. Is, you too. <laughs> that is Daria Shapovalova. She is the co-founder of TressX. And coming up on First Move, a very costly meltdown. The price that Southwest Airlines is paying for all of that holiday travel chaos. We'll tell you coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. Southwest Airlines suffering from a case of costly chaos. Southwest warning today that the operational meltdown that it suffered during that massive and deadly U.S. storm last month will cost the firm as much as $825 million. The price it will pay in terms of reputational damage, well, that could be much higher. Pete Montine joins me now. Pete, look, good to have you. I mean, it's only been a few weeks since that meltdown. What are we learning in terms of how much of that is lost revenue because of those flights or other expenses? You know, the Southwest stock symbol is love, L-U-V. Hard to believe that shareholders really love all of this news, and we're really getting this fuller picture of how bad this meltdown really was for Southwest Airlines. 16,000 flights Southwest canceled between December 21st and December 31st. So when you total all that up, Rahel, there's about 140 people on average on a Southwest Airlines flight. We're talking about 2 million people had flights canceled on them. So when you really sum all that up, it's really not all that surprising that these losses are between 725 million and $825 million for Southwest in the first quarter. The interesting thing here is that Southwest says, sure, its revenue went down, its expenses went up because they had to pay out employees and compensate them for overtime because all of these planes and all of these flight crews were out of position. 
And then also the amount that Southwest was spending on refunds went up. We have not seen the totality of how much Southwest will pay out to passengers. Uh, we're still uh, learning about that, and, and they're still paying out people right as we speak. So uh, we're not totally sure in the end how much Southwest will really pay here. There's still some lingering uh, questions out there. Uh, will they be paying out folks for lost bags? Uh, Southwest insures folks about $3,800 for each check bag, so long as they can prove what's inside. Uh, still some check bags out there that are still not returned to passengers two weeks after this meltdown started. And then also, will the airline be fined by the U.S. Federal Department of Transportation? So there could be some more expenses that Southwest has to incur here uh, for this big meltdown, 10 times bigger that its most recent meltdown, a real huge and staggering amount that Southwest lost here, Rahel, almost a billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. And what you're saying is there's more to come, more to learn. Pete Montine, thank you. Well, the annual Consumer Electronics Show is underway in Las Vegas right now. CNN's Linda Kincaid has a look at some of the cool gadgets being unveiled at this year's show. Thousands of emerging startups and global brands are showcasing cutting-edge gadgets and gizmos designed to help solve some of the world's greatest challenges, from the day-to-day to the life-saving, like taking the guesswork out of testing the ripeness of an avocado, relieve anxiety with a therapeutic cat pillow that wags. The more you cuddle, the more excited you get. Health innovations are prominently featured, trying a brain-scanning helmet that claims to detect early signs of dementia and Parkinson's. Rest your head on a pillow designed to give a better night's sleep. And watch a demo of an at-home defibrillator, a device that the company says saved 17 lives last year. We have developed the first life-saving defibrillator made for the home. So anyone can have it at home. It's extremely simple to use. It's portable. You can have it at home. You can have it in your backpack when you do gym, when you go on vacation. Glide past the booths on a remote-controlled pair of electric rollerblades that can go about 30 kilometres an hour. And check out an autonomous wheelchair that hopes to soon transport travellers to their gate at the airport with the click of a button. So it's an autonomous wheelchair. So passenger will get into the chair, select what gate they're going to be going to. Um, and then the chair just takes them directly to that gate. They don't need to drive it. They don't need to tell it where it needs to go. It'll just take them right there. Cars have become a big part of CES, with major automakers and others showcasing cutting-edge advancements and nearly 300 exhibitors expected. It will be one of the largest auto shows in the world. This year, there'll also be a lot of talk about Web3 and the metaverse. Though, as with most of what you'll find, it will take a while before all these gadgets become widely available. And before you rush out to buy your ticket, there is some bad news. This year's show will not open to the general public. It's only open to businesses, a move that this event's president says is due to public health concerns. We've instituted a lot of different measures in terms of, of trying to make this uh, a place where we mitigate diseases. We have wider aisles. We have greeters at the door so people don't have to open some of the major doors. So we're encouraging people to come but it is not open to consumers, it's only open to business. Despite that, the show's organizers are expecting as many as 100,000 people to attend. Linda Kincaid, CNN. And that is also it for this show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.